0: It's uh,
1: a real joy to be back with you this morning after having not been to church for four Sundays in a row. I don't know how you people do that. (laughs) I mean you can watch it online and that's better than nothing but only a little bit better than nothing. Um, Why do people who love particular bands that play music that you enjoy, why do you go to live concerts? You go to live concerts because it's radically different than just sitting in your home um, listening to uh, their album. You go because it's a gathered experience in which people are anticipating and expecting something great to happen. And that's one of the purposes of worship and coming together as God's people in worship is the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. God's spirit is here. Um, And you you might ask me, why, Pastor, did you not go to church? Well, there weren't any churches other than Roman Catholic, and I was afraid if I went to a Roman Catholic church, I would nail something on the door. (laughs) So I did not go. I did not leave the Lord, however, and he has not left me. So let me invite you this morning. uh, Oh, one other thing before I I say this. We do appreciate your prayers and your response to the loss of Pam's father. I uh, did the funeral um, this past week. I think it was on Tuesday. Is that correct? Tuesday. And we could feel the prayers of God's people uh, very much supporting us. And um, if a funeral can be good, this was a good funeral. Uh, while it was full of grief, there was a lot of hope in the gospel. Now, if you have your Bibles open to the book of Isaiah chapter 30 and verse 15, we're going to continue gospel reset for at least two or three more messages. But this uh, subject today, the gospel repentance, is really something you're going to need every day as long as you live in this body. And so I want you to listen to this carefully. Uh, I think I picked up some new insights just from reading and thinking uh, without the pressure of preaching uh, that I want to sort of run by you today. Hear now the word of the Lord. For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and trust shall be your strength, but you were unwilling. What a sad last four words to a verse. But the opening stanza of the verse is what we're going to think about together today. Let us pray. Father, we do pray for illumination as we seek to understand this passage because we know there is so much here that we need Uh, to revisit some of us need to hear it for the first time and we do pray that your spirit would be our teacher we pray that you would prepare our hearts in such a profound way uh, to hear the explosive power of God's word and may it make a difference in how we understand ourselves and you and our world and what it is you have called us to do and be And this we pray in Christ's name, Amen. The Reformation, the Protestant Reformation during the 16th century was not a discovery of the good news of Jesus Christ but rather a rediscovery of the good news of Jesus Christ. Accretions occurred during the Middle Ages or the medieval age and the gospel became lost through the Uh, things added by the church, particularly the Roman Catholic Church. The gospel is counterintuitive. That means it runs against the grain of the way any of us and all of us naturally think. The perfect religion for your soul would be something like Roman Catholicism because it caters to our natural longings and wantings. We do want to be able to do something to gain God's approval, to gain his favor. And we do feel Better about being in control of our salvation, at least our flesh does, that we can manage it, we can control it, we can do it, and somehow that just comes natural to us because it becomes natural to our religious fallen flesh. But what I wanted to talk about today is the concept of repentance and where it fits in our understanding of the nature of becoming a Christian and the nature of living the Christian life. And this has been somewhat controversial throughout the history of church, especially in Scotland. And in reading a great deal of Sinclair Ferguson's book, The Whole Christ, which I would highly recommend that any and every believer read the behind the Reformation became or what uh, conflict was the medieval discussions on how we as people receive the grace of God. Imprisoned as it was within the Latin Bible of Jerome the Vulgate the church had read Jesus's exhortation to repent and interpreted it as due penance the biblical idea of repentance then became associated with if not limited to specific concrete acts that a priest could prescribe for sin as part of the sacramental system For sinners, this became the prerequisite for the reception of further grace as slowly but uh, rarely rather than surely. The first infusion of grace at baptism was worked out through the sacramental system to its consummation in full justification with the cooperation of the recipient, if faith was ever fully suffused with perfect love for God, the individual could finally be justified, indeed righteously so, since grace had produced an internal righteousness that could be the grounds of your justification. Let me run through that again just for a moment so that you can get the whole of what I'm talking about. The Roman doctrine of the sacrament of penance involves three actions. First, it involves genuine contrition of the heart, feeling sorry out of a fear of punishment. Second, it involves confession to a uh, priest, confession of your sin to a priest. Third, it involves works of satisfaction. And so therefore, penance focuses on what you do in order to right your relationship with God. It is man's effort to save himself by his own suffering, sorrow, sincerity, intensity of contrition, and brokenness. And so repentance becomes, or penance as it were, becomes a work that we perform. It takes it out of the hands of God as a gift given to a person and rather becomes something I do, and the gospel is lost in that matter. Grace is gone. I had dinner with a couple in Ireland, and uh, they knew a little bit about me, and so they asked me, what is the difference between what you believe and what Roman Catholics, which is what we are, believe? I don't think they knew what they were going to get or they would have never asked that question. I said, thank you, Lord, inside. I was eating in a five-star Michelin restaurant, but I got the best question I could ever get. And I said, well, really, it's the difference between how we understand what the grace of God is. I said, in the Roman Catholic Church, you have this sacramental system. The church is the dispenser of salvation and grace. You are infused with grace, Through the sacraments, and if you work that grace out in your life, you gradually become more and more righteous, hopefully ultimately reaching a point where you no longer need grace and you are justified in God unless you have to spend time in purgatory getting this right. I said we believe on the other hand that God saves sinners that he receives us, that when we come to him in our sin, his disposition or heart toward us is one of acceptance. We don't have any steps to go through. We don't have any hoops to jump through. We don't have any ladders to climb. Rather, we just simply come empty-handed and receive the righteousness of Christ. I said we believe that God treats Jesus as our sins deserve and that through faith... In Christ God treats us as his son deserves. He gives us his righteousness. They both just looked at me with an open mouth and I could tell at that moment they had never heard that before. Ever. Ever. Stunned silence. I'm still praying that God will open their eyes and show them the beauty of that truth. But this is where we often go wrong in the Christian life. We fail to understand the difference between what genuine repentance is and we need to distinguish it. So in the Catholic view, God justifies those whom grace has already made righteous. Uh, in, In this sense, justification was by grace, but it was not by grace alone. It took place at the end of an extended and cooperative internal process. It was insisted that it is grace that produces righteousness and does so in such a way that the righteousness of God is revealed in what we might call the justification of those made righteous by grace. But the young men who were on the cutting edge of the newly birthed Reformation realized as they read Erasmus' edition of the Greek New Testament, that Jesus' message was not paientitium agit, do penance, but rather melanoia, which means repent. Repentance is not a discrete external act. It is the turning around of the whole life in Christ, with faith in Christ. Luther quite literally nailed this difference when he posted in his 95 theses uh, in Wittenberg, his first theses read, when our Lord Jesus Christ said, repent, he meant that the whole of the Christian life should be repentance. Repentance, then, is not a punctilious decision of a moment, but a radical heart transformation that reverses the whole direction of one's life. In the context of faith, the repentant sinner is immediately, fully, and finally justified at the very beginning of the Christian life. No wonder such joy was released and assurance flowed. But the question still remained how is evangelical repentance related to faith? Which comes first? Now, there's been a great argument over the order of salvation ever since somebody came up with it. And the order of salvation seems to say that repentance comes before faith. But the Reformers did not believe that, and our Westminster Standards do not believe that. Rather, and this is a nutshell quickly for you, that I'm going to say so you can hear it quickly and it's this. Repentance is born of faith. It is the fruit of faith in Christ. It is not a precondition. It is not preparation to come to Christ. The gospel is offered freely to sinners. And as we come and look outside of ourselves and rely upon him, at the very same time that faith that lays hold of Christ gives birth to a whole new life of repentance. By the way, you better get used to repentance because it is the only way for progress in the Christian life. Which tells me what? Am I growing in Christ? Am I growing in the grace of God? The Westminster Divines put it this way, repentance unto life is an evangelical grace. That is a gospel grace. By it a sinner out of the sense of Uh, The odiousness of sin, not only its danger but also its filthiness and odiousness of his sins as contrary to the holy nature and righteous law of God and upon the apprehension of his mercy in Christ to such as are repentant so grieves for and hates his sin as to turn from them all unto God purposing and endeavoring to walk with him in all his commandments." Thomas Boston was very emphatic on this point. Boston said, in a word, gospel repentance does not go before, but comes after the forgiveness of sins in the order of nature. And so the implication of preaching the gospel is now free and open because of the work of Christ. So now I want to distinguish between what is called evangelical repentance and legal repentance because they're two very different things. I want to talk about the difference between what the gospel produces in us and what religion and our religious nature conceives of when we think of the word repentance. And so give careful attention please. Luther again opened the Reformation by nailing the 95 theses to the door, and the very first of these theses was our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Our lifestyle as Christians is to be one of repentance. Now that sounds kind of bleak, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound like I'm always walking around Uh, broken and repented over my sins? How could that be a life of joy? But Luther seems to be saying that Christians never make much progress without repentance. And that, uh, but of course that wasn't Luther's point. He was saying that repentance is the way we make progress in the Christian life, indeed pervasive all-of-life repentance, is the best sign that we are growing deeply and rapidly into the character of Christ. Are you repenting? Do you find yourself turning away from thoughts and words and deeds in your life that you know are displeasing to God, that are disobedient to Him? And do you find yourself turning away and turning back to Christ, turning back to Christ and receiving His forgiveness? You know, some of us think that we're justified by how sincerely we repent that we have to grieve, we have to crawl across broken glass, we have to wear hair shirts, that we have to do all kinds of heroic acts to convince both God and ourselves that we're sorry. But the reality of repentance isn't about you at all. It takes the eyes off of you and turns them to Christ and returns to him, and you are forgiven because of the work of Christ. We'll get into that more in a second. But repentance has been transformed through the gospel it's important to consider how the gospel affects and transforms the very act of repentance in religion that is trying to save yourself through being a good moral person in religion the purpose of repentance is to keep God happy so he will continue to bless you and answer your prayers because you don't want God to be unhappy with you because God controls everything God is the God of the universe. And so the purpose of uh, repentance is to mollify or assuage God that he will continue to bless us and answer our prayers. So therefore, religious repentance is selfish and self-righteous and bitter all the way to the bottom. But in the gospel, the purpose of repentance is repeatedly to repeatedly tap into the joy Of our union with Christ. Repentance is truly the only route to joy. That's why when we confess our sins in a worship service, we're not doing it to grovel, we're not doing it to, you know, exercise worm theology, but rather we're trying to help ourselves see that in Christ there's more forgiveness than there is sin in me. There's more forgiveness in Christ in one drop of the blood of Christ than there is sin in me and you. And so repentance sort of becomes dues you pay to keep God on on your good side or to keep yourself on his good side. Religious repentance is incredibly selfish. In penance or in religion, we're only sorry for sin because of the consequences of it. It will bring us punishment, and so we want to avoid punishment. So we repent. But the gospel tells us that sin cannot ultimately bring us into condemnation. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now, 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 no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Satan may accuse us. But the Holy Spirit working in us always takes us back to the cross and enables us to see that our sins have been paid for. Christ is at the right hand of God as our advocate, as the propitiation for sin. And when Satan comes to accuse us, we look at Christ. And Christ says, in so many words, I died for that sin. That sin has been dealt with. Forgiveness is free to me, costly to me. him but I've been forgiven but in religion uh, the gospel tells us that it can't bring us into condemnation it is heinous, heinous and therefore what it does to God is it displeases and dishonors him But in religion, repentance is self-centered. The gospel makes repentance God-centered. In religion, we're mainly sorry for the consequences of our sin, but in the gospel, we are sorry for the sin itself and what it did to our Savior. Furthermore, religious repentance is self-righteous. Repentance can easily become a form of atoning for sin, earning our forgiveness. Religious repentance often becomes a form of self-flagellation in which we try to convince God and ourselves that we are so truly miserable and regretful that we deserve to be forgiven. Lord, can't you see how I'm suffering and agonizing and hating and uh, I hate myself. I've loathed myself. I'm really, really sorry. If you could just remember when you look at me to know how sorry I am, I can't forgive myself. You ever heard anybody say that? I heard somebody say this three do- days ago. I can't forgive myself. And my, I had to hold myself back because it was in a grief situation not to say, do you understand what you just said is so far from the gospel of Jesus Christ? I can't forgive myself. As if that's somehow going to work God into forgiving you. None of us deserve to be forgiven. And if you ever thought you did for one moment, you've totally missed it. We do not have to make ourselves suffer in order to merit forgiveness. We simply receive the forgiveness earned by Christ. If we say we have no sin in in us, the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us. Therefore, First John 1.8 says that God forgives us because he is just. That is a remarkable statement. It would be unjust of God to ever deny us forgiveness because Jesus earned our acceptance. In religion, we earn our forgiveness with our repentance. But in the gospel, we just receive it. We receive it. The free gift earned. By our Savior. Don't you see that a, an attitude or all of life repentance mindset really generates a lot of love for Jesus in our hearts? That it, above all else, exalts the person and work of Christ in our lives? But the last thing I want to say about penance or religious repentance is that it's bitter all the way down. In religion, our only hope is to live a good enough life that God will bless us. Therefore, every instance of sin and repentance is traumatic, unnatural, and horribly threatening. Only under great duress does a religious person ever admit they have sinned because their only hope is their moral goodness. And if your hope is in your goodness and your morality and your virtue, to have to admit you've sinned undermines and disposes of your foundation. You have no foundation. See the the trap you're in, see the hole you have dug for yourself? Any attempts to earn God's forgiveness leave you trapped with nowhere to go. But in the gospel, the knowledge of our acceptance in Jesus Christ makes it for us easier to admit we are flawed because we know we will not be cast off if we confess the true depths of our sinfulness. Now that you no longer have to maintain your record, now that you no longer have to prove that you're good, now that you no longer have to live by reputation, you are now free under the work of the Holy Spirit using the Word of God to see how deeply flawed every single one of us are. The gospel gives us courage and confidence and boldness to see our flaws, to see our sinfulness. And while it does that, it undermines our desire to want to judge everybody else. You ever judge people? You ever look at them and go, I can't believe they did that. I did that one time. My wife said, no, they did it. But it wasn't nearly, uh, uh, but when you did it 20 years ago, it wasn't nearly as bad as when they did it today. It's fun to judge people. It's fun to be superior. It's fun. It feels good to be self righteous. That's why we spend so much time there. But if you're truly getting the power of the gospel operative in your heart you begin to see as Jonathan Edwards once said about spiritual pride I can't fix other people there's too much going on in my heart that's my abridgment of it but what he really said was something much more intellectual and sophisticated it basically said I got so much trouble in my own backyard I can't complain about my neighbor you see gospel repentance undermines This passionate desire we have to pass judgment on one another. But in the gospel, the knowledge of our acceptance in Christ makes it easier to admit we're flawed. Our hope is in Christ's righteousness, not our own. So it's not as traumatic to admit our weaknesses and lapses. In religion, we repent less and less often. But the more accepted and loved in the gospel we feel, the more and more often we will be repenting. How do you know you're getting it? How do you know you're understanding the gospel? Because you're repenting more, not less. Pharisees don't repent. Legalists don't repent. Why? This is like shooting themselves in the foot. It undermines the whole process of self-justification. But genuine believers in Christ were constantly repenting. I don't know about you, but I'm a whole lot less impressed with me than I used to be when I first became a Christian. I mean, I knew I'd done some bad things, but I did not understand how the fall had touched and tainted every single dimension of my experience and that the, the, the purpose of God exposing that is to drive me to Jesus where real life is to feed upon Jesus I need him he needs to be my heart my hope my life and he only becomes that as we learn to walk this way as we walk in repentance and faith But as we trust in Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit enters us. The person of the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us. And he works in us repentance. Therefore, we will be repenting more and more. And though, of course, there's always some bitterness in repentance in the gospel, there is ultimately a sweetness the gospel is like candy that has a bitter coating, but inside is sweetness. Yes, we repent. It's not fun to repent. Anybody takes joy in that, it's a masochist. But we do repent, and we go through that momentary bitterness to get to the sweetness of the gospel. It becomes for us, as it were, candy, joy. This creates a radical new dynamic for personal growth. The more you see of your own flaws and sins, the more precious, electrifying, amazing, and animating God's grace appears to us. But on the other hand, the more aware you are of God's grace and acceptance in Christ, the more you'll be able to drop your denials, your self-defenses, admit the true, admit the true dimensions of your sin. The sin underneath all other sins is a lack of joy in Christ for the believer. And so we need to learn to cultivate gospel repentance. Now, knowing that I haven't preached in four weeks, this could get long. However, I'm at point three. I want to talk about returning, running, and refusing. Now, all of you know the story in Luke 15 of the loving father the prodigal son and the elder brother and I've heard that parable preached I have preached it myself probably 20 times I've mentioned it 50 times or more but the parable when it's read most people says well most parables have one point and uh, it's expressed in several dimensions but some people would say the prodigal son parable is about the parable of the free grace savior, for another the parable of the ingraced antinomian, and from another the parable of the disgraced legalist. The prodigal contemplates returning home because he knows his needs can be provided much more better in his father's house. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? But while there is the supply of needs in the home of his father, he is very naturally still wrestling with the remnant of Eden's poison. The God as he whose favor has to be earned lies. What else could the father do to such a sinful son? I will arise, he says, and I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Sounds like a Roman Catholic, doesn't he? Sounds like he's doing penance. And as he approaches the home of his once despised father who had shamed publicly, The father breaks all social convention by lifting his robe and running to his son. There should have been a shame party, a shaming ceremony for this prodigal son. But the father runs to him and instead greets him. And the prodigal now stammers out his rehearsed words through the hugs and kisses of the father. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the final rehearsed words, treat me as one of your hired servants, are smothered by the father's embrace. He will not have his son home only on the condition that he does penance in order to work his way back into his father's grace. He does not need to repent enough to be accepted. Poignantly, in this same parable, in the heart of the father, is a deep burden for his elder son he again leaves the house to find him this this father chases two sons Luke's introduction to the Jesus' narrative makes clear that it is this brother, not the prodigal, who forms the climax of the story of the parable. The Pharisees and the scribes grumbling, saying, this man, Jesus, receives sinners and eats with them. The grumbling is echoed in the complaint of the elder son. He was angry. In the New International Version, he says this, look, all these years I've been slaving for you, and I know never disobeyed your orders. You never even gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. To which the father responds in love, son, all that is mine is yours. What Jesus unmasked here is a legalistic heart, one that has imbibed the poison of Eden. Such a heart sees the Lord as a slave master, not a gracious father, as restrictive rather than generous. Everything the father has is available to him, but the elder son and his heart is closed. As far as he is concerned, nothing is his. He was at home, but he was in a more distant place than his younger brother. He thought he had to earn by right what he could only enjoy by grace. What is particularly illuminating is that we are given the impression that only in the context of a lavish display of grace did the hidden poison of the elder brother's legalistic disposition fully manifest itself. By the way, I think that penance and a misunderstanding of repentance and where it fits into the doctrine of salvation of soteriology or salvation is ultimately the seed that grows into the beast of legalism. That's where it comes from because it's quid pro quo. This for that. And that's exactly where this elder brother is in this parable. Exactly where he is. Perhaps the same was true of the Pharisees. This is thought to be Jesus' best love parable, usually because our eyes focus on both the father and the prodigal. But as with jokes, so with parables, there's the principle of both, of in stress. That is, the punchline comes at the very end. That being the case, the alarming message here is the spirit of the elder brother, the legalist, is more likely to be found near the father's house than in the pig farm or in concrete terms in the congregation among the faithful. And sometimes, only sometimes, it appears in the pulpit and in the heart of the pastor. Then it becomes dangerously infection, infectious. So it's justification by grace alone. Got it? The idea that justification by faith is the standing or falling article of the church is associated with Martin Luther. It is also surely the standing or falling article of the individual Christian. The strength or weakness of our grasp of being justified, declared to be in a right relationship with God forever under his favor by faith is integrally related to our freedom and joy in Christ. Free justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone lies at the heart of the application of redemption. The faith that unites us to Christ also sucks in every spiritual blessing in him. Peace with God, exaltation in the hope of the glory of God, in tribulations, and even in God himself. There is no condemnation for the believer, no prison cell existence. For what the law could not do, any that it was weak through our flesh, God has done. He sent his Son in the likeness of the flesh of sin and for sin to condemn sin in the flesh so that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. The spirit of bondage is gone. That is gospel logic. Grace eliminates boasting. Boasting is taking credit for anything I have done. Grace rules out all qualifications by definition. Thus, it is an understanding of God's grace, that is to say, understanding God himself, that demolishes legalism. Grace highlights legalism's bankruptcy and shows us that it's not only useless... It's pointless, it's life and breath is smothered out of it. Sometimes Christians say, Pastor, why don't you get off this gospel stuff and get us into the deeper truths of the Christian life? And there is, of course, a genuine progress in understanding the Bible that does mark maturity. But in reality, what we need is to dig down deeper into the first principles of the gospel. And yet the legal spirit so easily creeps into our thinking, which we will talk about next Sunday. But that's what I've been thinking about the last month. I am really crummy at repenting. Do you know know that the prodigal's repentance was the worst ever? But the father what? He didn't even listen to him. He didn't pay it any mind. He didn't pay it any attention. He just smothered it. Smothered it out of him with love. What I'm trying to say is come to Christ, come to Christ, come to Christ. Often, come to Christ. Keep your eyes on Jesus, keep your eyes on Jesus, keep your eyes on Jesus. In returning and rest, you shall be satisfied and quietness and trust is your strength. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It is true. And it counters all the lies that Satan whispers in our ears. We know that ever since the Garden of Eden he's been serving up that poison which tells us God doesn't really love us. God's not really for us. God doesn't care about me or my life. I'm nothing to him. I have to take life by my own hands. I have to take the reins and make something out of my own life because you can't trust him. You can't trust what he says. You can't trust what he does. Lord, I pray the truth will break through for us today so that we can see that God's heart is for us. If God is for us, Who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not also with him give us all things? Father, we do pray that as we continue to worship, we would give as those who are grateful, overwhelmed with joy because of the good news of the gospel. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.